the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. The Pan American Games were an attempt to bolster the sporting nations of both North and South America to create a sense of community and understanding among athletes from both continents. Post-war, they became one way of forging a common cause against a Cold War enemy. Whether that was entirely successful is a question that we'll be discussing with my next guest, Brenda Elsie, a history professor at Hofstra University in New York, who has a keen interest in politics and popular culture in Latin America. Brenda, tell me then about the Pan American Games. The Pan American Games are an effort by organizations, sports organizations throughout the continent to create a regional turn- tournament that would happen every four years that would prepare athletes and showcase them for the Olympics. And they, there's efforts beginning in the 1930s, but it's not until 1951 in Buenos Aires that they successfully organized the first officially recognized tournament. And where is the the push coming from? Where's the drive coming from? Who wants these games to happen and why? Well, the Latin American nations really want these games to happen, especially the national organizing committees, because they feel as though the Central American and Caribbean games have been very successful. They've seen seen other examples of this, and it comes out of a feeling that World War I had really shown the need, there's a, a sort of need for a focus on the Americas. And in, in that process, it happens again during the good neighbor policy in the 1930s that there needed to be a shoring up of goodwill among uh, nations of the Americas and that they could play a part in this. So there's both an athletic imperative. We need to prepare people for the Olympics. We need to showcase our athletes. And there's also a, a political and cultural dimension as well. And what kind of sports are envisaged for these games? Soccer is never embraced or pushed. It's also unclear about its professionalism versus its amateurism at the time. So track and field is a very important one. Swimming, boxing, which is undergoing a whole golden age in the 1930s in the Americas, is incredibly popular as well. So Latin America is beginning to organize itself into its own block. How does this fit in with the Cold War? Well, at the time, the U.S. wanted to force Latin America into choosing a side. So cultural politics are polemicized in the Cold War. And when Argentina takes the lead, for example, in the 1951 tournament, um, sports writers fume that this is the blackest day in U.S. sports history. So for the most part, U.S. journalists and policymakers show a complete lack of respect for Latin American independence, cultural innovation, contribution, and this is really on display in the Pan American Games. So it's a, it's a tremendous failure from the perspective of trying to create goodwill in Latin America. For the most part, for example, when in 1959 the games are hosted in Chicago, um, the major sports magazine in Argentina, El Grafico, runs a picture 
of Cuba's game against Argentina and the stands being completely empty. It's a football match, and it says, you know, just sort of in the coverage, and you can see the complete lack of regard that the U.S. has for us. And so any sort of solidarity that happens happens between Latin American delegations and not with the U.S. If anything, um, in 1955, Mexico, because of the complaints of the U.S., houses the Anglophones separately and says they simply can't get along with people, so they're going to be housed by themselves. Can you think of a less Olympic I mean, <laughs> thing to do than create their own Anglo-Olympic village? And, uh, and they fly in their own chef because the people from the U.S. say that they can't deal with Mexican food, which is a complete riot since there's nothing more popular in the U.S. in terms of ethnic food other than Mexican restaurants. But they claim, you know, Mexicans can't cook and we can't be here. So it, it, to a large extent, the U.S. does nothing but expose that as rhetoric. Um, however, that happens at the delegate level, at the level of journalists and diplomats. And in terms of athletes, it's a very different story. And they come away with very positive stories about competing against some of their heroes. Some of the people they've been watching, Maul Whitman, who's an African-American runner, is incredibly popular in the Latin American press, um, Gene Patton, and actually tennis star, for example, Althea Gibson, meets Esther Bueno, who's a Brazilian tennis star, and they'll go on to take Wimbledon in doubles years later. So they forge friendships in these places that are very much apart from U.S. plans or Latin American diplomatic plans for the games happening despite the North Americans? Pretty much. Uh, happening despite the, the North Americans. In, in large part, um, in 1955, you see a real uptick in animosity toward the U.S. on the part of Latin American officials. Uh, this is in response to the coup in Guatemala in 1954 and the ongoing proxy wars in Korea. And so the press is, is, is critical of the U.S. in world politics, and that's affected to a certain extent in 1955. However, the athletes are not booed, and they are routinely celebrated in the local press. So what the U.S. government says is anti-Americanism is, in fact, a competing form of Americanism, a, a broader, more uh, expansive notion, and that I didn't say that. Greg Grandin said that, who's a historian, <laughs> and that's his sort of argument. And I think that these, this is a case in which it's very true. Is it an effective bolster against the Soviet Union getting a foothold in Latin America, though, if if that's what its diplomatic aim is? That is likely a diplomatic aim. It is unlikely that they felt it was going to come through sports. So it, while, it's, while it's always important that the Soviet Union is held up as a false amateurism, that it is a robot society without freedom of expression, that is always reproduced in the Latin American press on its own terms. They don't need the U.S. to tell them about those stereotypes because they have communist parties and socialist parties that they're actively electing, persecuting, depending on the, the context. Um, if the U.S. considers it a priority to use the Pan American Games as a platform to dissuade Latin America from Soviet ambitions in the region, they certainly don't back that up with very much money. And so probably there are other cultural spheres that I've read about, you know, that we've all read about, like the tours of Louis Armstrong or other 
sorts of cultural figures that the U.S. thinks is more effective in doing that anyway. And with your research going on up until 1958, 1959, that leaves us in the best traditions of show business as on something of a cliffhanger because Latin America was about to suddenly uh, fall into the Cuban Missile Crisis, Mm -hmm. the Cuban Revolution, everything would change. What about the Pan American Games? Were they they a beacon through the wilderness? Well, uh, the 1963 Games in, in, in Brazil are very successful, and they continue to be successful. In 1979, there's an attempt to have them again in the U.S., and the Latin American delegates will only agree to do that if it's in Puerto Rico. So there's an obvious feeling that U.S. proper would not be able to host them without an overly polemical, ideological, and um, otherwise politically motivated tournament. And so they, they decide Puerto Rico, which is just about as polemical as you can get in 1979. So they're fairly successful throughout the 1960s because it's Canada, it's Brazil, right? It's, things are going fairly well. Um, in 1979, it goes from the U.S. organizing officials, at least rhetorically talking about goodwill, to a new, and this has to do with the election of Reagan and new fears in Central America, there's a new kind of Cold War viciousness to the rhetoric. And it, it comes out, I argue, in Bobby Knight's behavior in 1979 in Puerto Rico when he's arrested because he won't let the Brazilian women's team practice in the gym, and he assaults a Puerto Rican police officer. Bobby Knight, the coach at University of Indiana, and the men's coach, the men's national coach for the U.S. basketball team. And he goes to Puerto Rico, and the Brazilian women try to enter the gym, and he bars them from entering, even though it's their time to practice, and says, no one cares about you. And he asked the, the police officer, who's Puerto Rican, to please remove the women from his sight. And the women don't move. They're quite a bit bigger than Bobby Knight. And the Puerto Rican officer does not want to remove the women. And so Bobby Knight punches him and uses a racial slur that I will not put on this podcast and uh, goes to jail but is bailed out with the help of the State Department so he can coach the final game the next day. He's convicted in absentia, six months in jail, holds a press conference in which he says the only effing thing that Puerto Ricans are good for is growing bananas. <laughs> he also doesn't seem to understand that Puerto Ricans hold a U.S. passport. And so what I'm arguing is things shift from 1959, where they may have been critical and charged about communism in Cuba, and that by 1979, there's not even an effort to hide the animosity and distrust that they feel towards even their own commonwealth. That it's just, you know, everyone's anti-American, it's everyone against us, and there's a kind of creation of victimhood that goes to, you know, the Rocky movies, basically. Like, we are besieged at all ends, right? No, no No one likes us. And, and this has the, the effect of, of allowing this really violent and racist commentary to fly. He tries to turn in his resignation to University of Indiana. The governor of Indiana says we could never allow that. He's done a tremendous patriotic service. And this is the 1979. So 1959, yes, there's tension, definitely polemical. 
definitely, you know, anti-Soviet 1979, there's just no pretense of niceties. It's us versus them. Would you consider uh, the Pan-American Games to uh, be a success then? It doesn't sound like it. Only for Latin American governments and athletes. Not, certainly not for the United States. In the Latin American press, they routinely report on the insensitivities, injustices, and power imbalance between the U.S. and the rest of the continent. And there's the North Americans all sitting around drinking coffee and wondering why everybody hates them. What the response is, when criticized for their provincialism, uh, on the U.S. Olympic Committee is notably John McGovern. And when asked about their behavior in the congressional meetings, because of course there's the games and then there's also the organizations that meet for hours on end to figure out rules and regulations, and, and this is an important site of exchange. And John McGovern says, Quote, our southern friends had not yet discovered that we knew best from our superior experience what to do and how to do it. And our aggressive approach was animated purely by a wish to be useful and helpful to them. End of quote. So it's hard to mistake the paternalism of USOC officials like John Montgomery. So the North Americans considered that they were doing the Latin Americans a favor. Which is frequently how they framed political intervention in Latin America. So it's basically handing the politicians one more way to frame a really complicated issue like the occupation of the Dominican Republic, which is always framed as a favor that the U.S. is doing for its immature neighbor to the south. So it fits in line with other paternalist politics, too. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.